Chapter 4 of Tea Its Mystery and History. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ruth. Tea Its Mystery and History by Samuel Phillips Day. Chapter 4 the plant botanically considered. The Linnaean system of botany classifies the tea plant of the polyandria and of the order monogenia. What is styled the natural system associates it with the family of the carmelia. The tea plant, which is an evergreen, grows to the height of five or six feet. The leaves are about an inch and a half long being narrow, indented and tapering to a point similar to those of the sweet briar. The colour is a dark green, the root is like that of the peach tree, while the flowers resemble the wild rose. A number of irregular branches issue from the stem. The fruit is small, containing round blackish seeds about the size of a bean. The shrub must have had at least a three years' growth before it is fit for being plucked. This valuable plant is largely cultivated not only in China, but also in India, Japan and the eastern archipelago. There are two primary kinds of tea, namely the Fia verdis or green shrub and the Fia bohea or black plant. The former delights in elevated situations and a temperate climate. The latter requires the protection of valleys, the sloping sides of mountains and the banks of rivers with a more tropical sun. To the situations and the temperatures the delicate flavour of the green and the greater astringency of the black tea are mainly due. In England at one period all descriptions of black tea were denominated bohea. It is known, however, that this particular title belongs exclusively to inferior varieties and in no way includes such superior products as congu, sucon, pico, and I may add caper, which is regarded as a fancy growth and never imported into this country unless adulterated. Of the green teas, the commonest and cheapest is twanky, the finest sort being hyson, which comprises young hyson and gunpowder. There are a number of intermediate and less known varieties, to which must be added the fine groves of Assam and other provinces of British India. The tea plant may be cultivated with more or less success in climates within 35 degrees or 40 degrees of the equator. Some writers affirm that so long as the temperature be suitable, the character of the soil is of little importance. Others, on the contrary, assert that tea will grow in any part of China or India, even much further north than I have mentioned. The balance of experience, however, is against them. As regards the quality of tea, this must depend not only on its variety and growth, but also on the time during which the leaves are gathered. Directly the refreshing spring flowers have passed off, 
and a gracious sunshine succeeds, which, aided by drying winds, chases away each leaflet's tears. The tea-harvesting season commences with vigour. Hundreds, and occasionally thousands, of little merry leaf-gatherers may be seen sallying forth at early morning to their pleasant labour, singing, laughing, prattling, and dancing as they go. Then, when the midday gong sounds, work ceases for the nonce, when these pretty, dark-eyed, dark-haired damsels squat in groups among the bushes, while they partake of their frugal meal of rice, moistened by copious draughts of hot, weak tea. Immense care is necessary in order to protect the delicate young leaf from injury. As a rule, the girls employed undergo a species of training to prepare them for their work. Not only so, but while engaged in plucking the flowery peacock, they wear gloves of perfumed leather. Every leaf has to be plucked separately. Still so expert are the pluckers that an average gathering would amount to twelve pounds weight daily for each person. There are three seasons. The first commences at the end of February, or the beginning of March. The second, about the end of March, or the first week of April. Third, at the end of May, or in June. The earliest leaves constitute the most exquisite and expensive teas, while the second crop forms the largest proportion of the entire produce. The best description is the produce of the early spring, when the leaves are young and small. But many growers, for the sake of increased quantity, prefer gathering the leaves later in the season, when they are not simply larger, heavier and more numerous, but when they have lost much of their pristine flavour. Of course, only experts who devote their lives to the work can distinguish the difference between the various growths of early spring or late autumn. Consequently, the ordinary consumer of tea is compelled to trust to the integrity of the particular retailer from whom he procures this commodity. But as the majority of retail grocers do not profess to know the true value of tea, it follows that they in their turn have to place implicit trust in the better judgment of the wholesale dealer, commercial traveller or middleman with whom they do business. Tracing the history of tea to a very early period, we find that complaints of adulteration were very prevalent. In England, the chief deception practised consisted in the admixture of sloe and other leaves with the genuine article. The re-drying of leaves that had been already used was a malpractice equally as disgraceful. The tea so tampered with was little better than a mass of woody fibre, destitute of those chemical properties upon the presence of which the value and virtue of this tropical beverage depends. More mischievous still was the practice adopted some time since, by which an ingenious mixture of sumac leaves and kataku was made to resemble tea, so that ordinary persons could not detect the counterfeit. Yet, notwithstanding the last-mentioned substance, from its powerfully astringent action on the system, was calculated to induce serious mischief to health. This objectionable com compound was literally sold under the protection of a patent, and was known in the trade as Lavino Bino, the Chinese tea improver.
The public, however, heard nothing of this impotent fraud until after the scheme succeeded and all the mischief had been done. Bad as are the adulterations of the leaf practised in this country, those adopted by the Chinese are even worse. Not very long since, much commotion was created respecting lye tea, which was thrust in the market. This base presentment consisted either wholly or in great part of leaves which had no affiliation whatever to the tea plant, but consisted of leaves and weeds gathered anyhow, then rolled and dried and artificially flavoured so as to resemble the genuine article. With reference to what is called green tea, the system frequently pursued in its preparation is highly reprehensible. The green teas sold in England are usually artificially coloured in order to enamour the eye of the unsuspecting purchaser. The principal medium employed in effecting this result is none other than Prussian blue, a deadly poison, and inimical to health even in the minutest quantity. According to Mr. Fortune, no less a proportion than half a pound is used to every hundred weight of leaf. Although botanicists have divided tea into two species, still the black and green descriptions are but varieties of the same plant. Practically, it is found more convenient to cultivate each sort separately, certain districts favouring the specific growths. But any description of black tea can, in the process of drying, be converted into green. Of course, the Chinese never touch these artificially coloured products. They have too much good sense for that. While they consider the English fools for their pains, inasmuch as the pretty colour tickles their fancy, and they are induced to pay a higher price for this sophisticated commodity. End of chapter 4 Recording by Ruth